Okay, well, before we get started today, why don't I open us up with a word of prayer? Father, we thank you so much for the day you've given us. Thank you for the rain. What a beautiful sight and for the cooler temperatures. Thank you for the opportunity for us to gather here today to discuss you and your word, to learn more about you and to be changed by the truths that we have in the Bible. We ask you to bless this conversation now, uh, cause us to grow uh, closer to you and closer to one another. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, you can see that today we are talking about the Trinity. We are going to spend probably two weeks uh, defining the Trinity. And then the third week we will discuss Trinitarian heresies. Uh, the things that you'll run into when you're talking to non-Christians about the Trinity that they will want to teach about the Godhead. And so it's important to know some of those teachings too. Uh, but first, we have to understand what we believe based on Scripture. Now, I did give you some homework last time. I asked you to perhaps discover where in Scripture the Trinity is either implied or explained. Where in Scripture the Trinity is either implied or explained. Now, you had two weeks to do this homework. Uh, we didn't meet last week. That makes it less likely. <laughs> Perhaps. Genesis 1.26, for God said, let us make man in our image. Okay, that's good. What are some other passages? Well, would we say that's, that's implied or explained? Implied. Implied. Because all, all we're really working with there is pronouns, right? you got plural and singular things going on at the same time. But what other passages? Genesis 1, 1 through 3. Genesis 1, 1 through 3, you've got, In the beginning God created, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. God said. And God said. He spoke. Yep. The Word is spoken. Good. Great Commission. Great Commission. Yes, Matthew 28, 19. Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them and teaching them all the things I have commanded you. And the baptism is to be in the name... Singular, of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Okay. Andy? So I'm cheating, but okay. to James White on the Trinity. Yeah. Um, he's talking about, um, at the Oaks of Memory, when Abram was talking to the Lord before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. And it said, Yahweh... Good. Discussion. Yeah. Yeah, and we see in, uh, in those Old Testament passages implications like that in a lot of places. Um, even, you know, Genesis 1, 1 to 3, we would still have to say there's, it's heavy on the implication rather than the explanation there. Any others that come to mind as we get started? Jerry. Isaiah 11, 1 and 2, it talks about Jesse being, become a root from him mm. and the spirit. Good. Yes, so there will be this Messiah, God among us, and the Spirit will be on him. Good. Melissa? Did someone mention the baptism of Jesus? No, but yes, Matthew 3.16, you've got Jesus coming up from the water. Um, there was a voice from heaven. This is my Son, in whom I am well pleased. 
and the Spirit. What does it say about the Holy Spirit? Let me test your Bible knowledge. What does it say? Oh, very good. Very good. Not in the form of a dove, right? Yeah, that's very important. It's a simile that's used there. Not saying the Holy Spirit turned into a bird. The Holy Spirit doesn't turn into birds, okay? But he, the Holy Spirit lighted on him, it says in the King James, uh, came upon him like a dove. Good. One more, Andy. Oh, good. well, Sandra, the name. John 14, 26, talking about the Holy Spirit. Very good. The Father sends the Holy Spirit in the name of Jesus. And then after in John 16, just a couple chapters later, Jesus says that he will uh, be sent by the Son and the Father together. Good. Andy? Transfiguration. Yeah, Matthew 17. Again, yes. The same thing you hear in Matthew 3, you hear in Matthew 17. The Father saying, this is my Son in whom I am well pleased. Good. Okay, well, last week we talked about this distinction, how we are not atheists, right? We are theists. But there are lots of people who are theists. Hindus are theists. Uh, Muslims are theists. Jehovah's Witnesses are theists. Well, we're monotheists. Well, that separates us from the Hindus, but does that really separate us a lot? Well, no, because there's still lots of religions that claim monotheism, the belief that there is only one God. What really separates us from all other religions is that we are Trinitarian monotheists. Trinitarian monotheists. We believe in one God, yet we believe he is eternally revealed in three co-equal persons. Trinitarian monotheists, that makes us different than all the rest. Okay. Now let me, um, let me give you what the Westminster Shorter Catechism says regarding the Godhead. The question is, how many persons are there in the Godhead? There are three persons in the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. And these three are one God, the same in substance, equal in power and glory. A very succinct statement that includes very important terms that rightly defines the Trinity, our belief of the Godhead. Okay? So this would be a good one to memorize. If you were looking for a sentence to memorize, you could memorize that. Um, in fact, I believe the first half of that you probably could just rattle off the top of your head today. But the second half of that is important, these distinctions. These three are one God in the same substance, equal in power and glory. Okay? From the Westminster Shorter Catechism. Gerald Bray says this, the revelation of the Trinity as opposed to the implied Unitarianism of Judaism. Now stop right there because that's a lot of syllables. Unitarianism, it's not talking about um, the liberal branch of religion that says everybody goes to heaven. Unitarian Universalists or whatever. It's not talking about that. It's talking about Unitarianism as opposed to Trinitarianism. Unitarianism is the view that God is one person. Jews believe God is one person. That's called Unitarianism. We believe God is three persons. Trinitarianism. Right? So the revelation of the Trinity, as opposed to the view of Unitarianism, can be explained only by the transformation of perspective brought about by Jesus. The Trinity belongs to the inner life of God and can be known only by those who share in that life. 
when Jesus came into the world through the incarnation, the virgin birth, that is really where the Trinity starts to be explained in Scripture. The Old Testament, you get a lot of things that are implied. The New Testament, we're going to learn, you start getting things explained through the person of Jesus Christ. <laughs> Melissa. What do Jews believe about the Holy Spirit and the Messiah who has yet to come? Okay. Well, asking in the year 2020, what do Jews believe, um, you know, assumes a bit of a monolith that doesn't exist because Jews are all over the map. Um, I don't know about the official rabbinic teachings today um, on those things. But uh, it's likely that they could talk about the Holy Spirit as God's influence, God's power in someone's life. Not a person, but rather a power. <clears throat> and the Messiah uh, being one who is to come, who will be anointed, but not necessarily Yahweh himself. I mean, they would certainly see that distinction between Yahweh and the Messiah. Jim. <coughs> How do you define the term person? We will get there. Okay. We're getting there. <laughs> Substance and person, those two words need to be defined. Okay? Um, but as it comes to the concept of the Trinity, there are three words that you need to know for the Trinity. The first two seem contradictory, but they are actually complementary. Okay? Three words you need to know, and you've got them on your handout there. They're highlighted in bold. Uh, the first two are singularity and plurality. So let me give you some quick statements on this. Singularity. God is a simple being. That's one of the incommunicable attributes we discussed. He can't be divided into parts. You can't break God down into fractions. He is a simple being. He is singular. Deuteronomy 6.4 is a great verse for that. What does Deuteronomy 6.4 say? Very good. The Lord is not many. The Lord is one. Now you can see from a Jewish perspective, a Unitarian perspective, that God is one person. You read Deuteronomy 6.4, it says right there, God is one. But that's not the only scripture we have, is it? <laughs> if that was the only scripture we have, we wouldn't come to a conclusion of the Trinity. But we have other scriptures. But, so we recognize Deuteronomy 6.4 states God is singular. There's a truth there that God is singular. But God is also plural. Within his unity and his simplicity, he is plural. Genesis 1.26, we talked about this verse earlier. For God said, let us make man in our image. In that same Torah, where Deuteronomy is found, you turn back to the first book of the Torah, Genesis, the first chapter of the first book, and you have plural pronouns being used for God. So if that was the only verse we had, we probably wouldn't come to the conclusion that God is one person. We would say, well, there are multiple persons. We wouldn't know to stop at three, but we could say, well, God is plural, period. But instead, we've got these truths in the Torah, both that God is singular and that God is plural, and we have to accept and embrace both of them. We can't look at one and say, well, I don't like those other ones, so we're going to explain those away. We have to embrace both at the same time. They're complementary in that sense, though they appear contradictory. If God is not unified, then we have polytheism. Multiple gods exist. But if God is not plural, then we are left with only the Father, only the Son, or only the Spirit being God. Or this idea that God is one at a time. He is the Father sometimes, the Son sometimes, and the Spirit sometimes. And we will discuss that in a couple weeks, what view that is. 
But we recognize that God is both unified, singular, and he is plural. Okay? This is how he has revealed himself. Thoughts or questions on this slide? Because when we're talking about the Trinity, it's really easy to jump to all kinds of things. That I'm, I am indoctrinating you intentionally here. So we're going through this with a purpose. Melissa, then Andy. Every false religion has started with human reason. Andy. So, um, I don't know how much talk to this, but I heard, who's the, who's the Christian bull taker at the farm? Something like that. Pew. Pew. Okay. Yeah. So Pew research. Something and they were asking the foundations of Christianity and asking people to self-describe Christians. Something like 60 or 70 percent could not, without wandering into heresy. Now, I'm not saying this is necessarily hard reason, but like 70 percent could not describe the training. Oh, yeah. So, in that vein, I was asking if maybe you could put together like a series of questions. I, I see you're hinting at it here. I'm just yeah. asking. You might already have it. Uh, a series of questions for our church to survey our church. Well, no, no, no. I'm just saying, as, as a, I learned by being asked. By pers for personal purposes. Yeah. Okay, gotcha. Well, we actually are planning on giving a theological test to our church soon to see where our weak spots are. So cool. you can prepare for that too. <laughs> but yeah, um, the same. The same research, probably, maybe even the same study, came out and uh, found that, what was it, close to 70% of all Christians affirm the statement that Jesus is the first and greatest creation of God. That's a problem. If Jesus is a creature, he cannot save us. Okay. All right, let's keep going. Um, let's look at Deuteronomy 6.4 together. This one we've already referenced. Turn there in your Bible. Deuteronomy 6.4. I want you to see something. Give you a little bit of Hebrew today. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. The great Shema passage. Shema is the Hebrew word for here. So here. Hopefully you remember that from our sermon series through Deuteronomy. We repeated that over and over. Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Now, the word for Lord, when it's in all caps in your Bible, what Hebrew word is that? Yahweh. 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 When you see Lord in all caps, it's the Hebrew word Yahweh. What about that word God? Elohim. 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 Good. Yeah, you'll sometimes see Lord with a capital L and lowercase O-R-D, and that's the word Adonai. Not as popular as Yahweh or Elohim. So if you were going to substitute out the words Lord and God for the Hebrew words here, how would it read? Someone want to read that? Substitute out the English Lord and the English God for the Hebrew words. What does it say? Hear, O Israel, 
Yahweh, our Elohim, Yahweh is one. Now, what's interesting is the word Yahweh is singular. It means I am. This is the name that was given at the burning bush when Moses said, who should I say has sent me? I am has sent you. Yahweh. Right? It's a singular word. Now, the word Elohim, do you know much about that word? What do you know about that Hebrew word? It's a broad term of generosity. Yeah, it's used broadly. It can be sometimes used of angels. But it's also plural. The word El in Hebrew, E-L, is the word for God. You may have heard El Shaddai or El, you know, you've got these other Hebrew words where it means the God who is this, the God who is that. Um, Elohim is the pluralized version of El. So it's plural. And Yahweh is singular. Here, O Israel, the Lord, Yahweh, our God, the Lord is one. That's the Hebrew word Echad, one. So what you have going on here, it's very not obvious to us in the, from reading our English Bible, and it is subtle even in the Hebrew. But what you have is singular and plural going together even in this great command. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. So now what I want us to do, we're going to look at quite a bit of, of Scripture, in the old, starting in the Old Testament. And we need to realize that the doctrine of the Trinity is implied in the Old Testament, explained in the New Testament. It's not saying it's not there. We don't have this doctrine in the Old Testament. It's there, but it's more of an implied than an explained kind of thing. All the dots needed for the picture are provided in the Old Testament, but they are not fully connected until the New Testament. So you've got dots in the Old Testament. They get connected in the New Testament. All right? Mr. Bowman. Can you say it's in um, a Yeah, certainly, I mean, the very nature and character of God is assumed from Genesis 1-1, isn't it? So, yes, it's assumed, but it's explained to us through the revelation of Jesus Christ. Okay? Now, you've got that box there in the middle of your sheet. You're going to use that to write down verse references. You're going to create a little cheat sheet of sorts that you can keep with you when you get into a, a discussion about the Trinity. Where do you turn in the Bible for this or for that? Well, this box will help you, okay? If you follow along and fill it out, this will help you. So let's start with some foundational passages that we've already mentioned. Genesis 1.26 and Deuteronomy 6.4. Genesis 1.26, God said, let us make man in our image. How many images are there? How many images are there in Genesis 1.26? One. But there's a plural pronoun, our image. One image, multiple persons. Okay, it's pretty plain. And Deuteronomy 6.4, of course, which we just looked at. Those are foundational in the Old Testament when it comes to a discussion of the Trinity. Someone wants to talk to you about the Trinity and say, well, the Jews never believed that. Well, they may have never believed it, but that doesn't mean there's not evidence in Scripture that God was revealing himself as such. Then we need to look at the deity of each of the persons. The Father's deity is pretty straightforward and simple. Who's going to question the deity of God the Father? Uh, well, we still need to just make sure we cover our bases. Nehemiah 9.6 and Psalm 86.10. 
If someone wants to get Psalm 86.10, I can maybe pull up uh, Nehemiah 9. My Bible app on my phone's being slow. I should have brought my actual Bible. Will someone get Nehemiah 9.6? How about that? Nehemiah 9.6, and then someone else get Psalm 86.10. Who's got Nehemiah? Okay, and then Psalm 86.10. Andy, go ahead, Tyler. You alone are the Lord. You have, that's Yahweh. You alone are Yahweh. You have made the heavens, the heavens, heaven of heavens with all their hosts, the earth and all that is in, on it, the seas and all that is in them. You give life to all of them, and the heavenly hosts bow down before you. All right, so whenever you see in Scripture a uh, passage that just makes reference to God in heaven, particularly in the Old Testament, uh, what the writer most often has in view is the idea of, of the one God, the Father. Uh, you think of how Paul writes his letters, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Um, when you see just God being used or just Lord being used, you always need to look at the context to see if the Trinity is being spoken of, if the Son is being spoken of, who's being spoken of there. But often the default position of the writer is they're referring to the Father. Okay, Andy, Psalm 86, 10. For you are great and do wondrous deeds. You alone are God. Very good. Okay. Um, there is one God in heaven, according to the Old Testament, isn't there? And he does whatever he pleases. The Son's deity. Now, this is where it gets more tricky, because Jesus hasn't come to earth. So where do we find, in the Old Testament, verses about Jesus, when Jesus hasn't been born yet? Well, we see it in several places. Let's all turn together to Psalm 45. Psalm 45, verses 6 and 7. These are our Wi-Fi passwords here at the church. One of our channels is Psalm 456 in reference to Psalm 45, verse 6. And the other one is Psalm 1101 in reference to Psalm 110, verse 1. No Latter-day Saint's going to crack into our Wi-Fi with these messianic prophecies here. So, <clears throat> these verses about Jesus being God. So let's look at Psalm 45, verses 6 and 7. Who can read that for the class? Psalm 45, 6 and 7. Mr. Carroll. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever, a scepter of unrighteousness in the scepter of your kingdom, and have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of joy above your fellows. Wow. So look at look at what was just read. So just look at verse 6. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Verse 7. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you. What's going on there? Well, obviously, there are two distinct persons found interacting with one another, both called God. You see that? One is anointing the other. One has a throne that is forever and ever. Both are called God. It's an interesting passage. And do you know what New Testament book really explains this, brings it out, and makes reference to Jesus? What book in the New Testament does that? Hebrews. Hebrews. The book of Hebrews. 
Okay, it's important to read Hebrews alongside some of these messianic prophecies. Okay, let's turn to Psalm 110. Psalm 110. This is the most, I think, or close to most, uh, quoted Old Testament passage in the New Testament. Psalm 110.1. Psalm 110, verse 1. Yes, multiple times in Hebrews. Who would like to read that for us? Psalm 110, verse 1. The Lord says to my Lord, the Lord says to my Lord, two persons, each called Lord. We have Yahweh and Adonai being used, two different Hebrew words. But the psalmist here, David, is making reference to one who is Lord being anointed by Yahweh. Interesting. Okay. And then Isaiah 9, 6 and 7. You know this one. It's a Christmas passage. For unto us a child is born. Okay, a son is given. And what does Isaiah 9, 6 and 7 say about this one who was born, who was given to us? Yes, he will be called Mighty God, Wonderful Counselor. Eternal Father, Prince of Peace, there will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Mighty God, the one who was born will be called Mighty God. Perhaps you remember several weeks ago when we were talking about the names of God. Almighty is a term in Hebrew used of none other than God. No one was ever called Almighty in the Hebrew Old Testament than God himself. And the one who is to be born, the Messiah, he is to be called Mighty God. Isn't that amazing? And he will have a government with no end. Of whom could that be said other than God himself? Okay, thoughts or questions on these Old Testament references? It's not an exhaustive list, but these are prominent ones. One of the other names is Everlasting Father. Yes. He's the Son. Yes. Well, in the Old Testament, you never see the language Father, Son, and Spirit as far as uh, the Trinity being explained like in the New Testament. We see that multiple times in the New Testament. And it's tripped, that verse has tripped a lot of people up. There are two explanations um, for it as to what could be in view there. One is the idea of just stating that this one will be um, not bound by time. He will be the father of time. He will be, not father of time, but the father of time. He will be everlasting in the sense that he is outside of time. He has sovereignty over the ages. Um, the other view of that I'm having a hard time remembering, but I can give you a, a reference. Gotquestions.org has an article on that very question. I love gotquestions.org. I've used them for years. Uh, the founder of that website went to the school I went to, um, so he's weird. But uh, uh, but it's a good website, and you should check that out. Um, just type in on Google. If you ever come across a question like this, just type in whatever the question is. 
and then type in got questions after and you'll see the got questions article on the first page of Google usually so right there at the top okay the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament he shows up doesn't he we already mentioned in Genesis 1 he was hovering over the waters but here's some other ones that probably didn't come to mind for you 2 Samuel 23, 1-3, Job 33, 4, and Psalm 139, 7. I'll take the 2 Samuel passage, 2 Samuel 23, and uh, I really like the Job 33 passage. It's one that not a lot of people know about. Who can take Job 33 for us? Jim. And Psalm 139, verse 7, Melissa. Okay, in 2 Samuel 23, we have the last song of David. It says, now these are the last words of David. David, the son of Jesse, declares, quote, The man who was raised on high declares, the anointed of the God of Jacob and the sweet psalmist of Israel. Now begins the quote. Sorry, I started the quote too early. The spirit of the Lord spoke by me. And his word was on my tongue. The God of Israel said, the rock of Israel spoke, he who rules over men righteously, who rules in the fear of God. The spirit of the Lord spoke by me, he said, and his word was on my tongue. Who has the authority to speak and reveal and direct? Only God himself. And here we see in the Old Testament Inspiration, inspiration of scripture. We've talked about that in this class already, that we believe the Bible's inspired and we often think of New Testament passages for that. Well, here you have David in the Old Testament saying, I was inspired by God himself, God, the Holy Spirit. Um, Job 33, 4. The Spirit of God has made me and the breath of the Almighty gives me life. All right. Who can create human beings? (laughs) God himself. And it says, the spirit of the Lord made me. And Psalm 139, 7. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? Okay, the Holy Spirit is the very presence of God. And he is omnipresent. He is present in multiple places at once. This is why it's important for you to know the attributes of God. When we study those incommunicable attributes, the, the things that God has that he doesn't share with another, he alone creates, he alone speaks with authority, he alone is omnipresent. When you know these things about God and then you read, oh, the Holy Spirit is doing these things, the Holy Spirit must be God, right? There's no other conclusion that could be drawn. If the, if the scriptures testify to the Holy Spirit as being a creator, one who is omnipresent, and one who has authority, he has to be God. He can't be anything else. And then finally, there's a simultaneous aspect. And this is really important when it comes to arguing with modalists. I shouldn't say arguing with. When you're sparring with, crossing swords with, debating with modalists, and we'll talk about modalism in a couple of weeks. But there are those who say, well, God is sometimes the Father, sometimes the Son, sometimes the Spirit. But that is not the way the Bible presents God. The Bible presents God as being simultaneously 
Father, Son, and Spirit. That these three persons are different from one another and they exist at the same time. Very important that we recognize this. And I've got two passages in Isaiah where you can see it. We can turn there together. Isaiah 48 and Isaiah 61. Isaiah chapter 48 is where we'll start with verse 15. Isaiah 43 or 48 rather, verses 15 and 16. Who would read that for us? 48 15 and 16. Who's got it? Mr. Carroll, go ahead. I even I have spoken. Indeed, I have called him, and I have brought him, and he will make his way successful. Come near to me, listen to this. From the first, I have not spoken to in secret. From the time it took place, I was there. And now the Lord God has sent me and his spirit. Okay, let's look at just that very last phrase, which in the New American Standard starts with the word and. And now the Lord God has sent me and his spirit. Who is talking here? And now the Lord God has sent me and his spirit. God the Father, I am he, I'm first. Okay, but what? Who's the first and the last in Revelation? Jesus. Okay, all right. So we can't assume the Father. The Father has never been sent by anybody. So at the end of verse 16, the Lord God has sent me, and in the New American Standard, the me is capitalized. That's always helpful when they do that, isn't it? The Lord God has sent me and his spirit. It appears as though the Son is speaking, saying, The Father has sent me, and the Father has sent his spirit. And you've got all three persons simultaneously involved in activity. And then you see different roles, and we're going to get into that more in the New Testament, different roles and functions. Because the Father, as Tyler just said, the Father has not been sent by anybody. But the Son has. That's important. Different roles. And the Holy Spirit is sent by the Father and the Son. Interesting, okay? Isaiah 61. Let's look at Isaiah 61 also, verses 1 through 3. This should ring a bit familiar to you. Isaiah 61, verses 1 through 3. Who can read that for us? Okay, go ahead. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to console those who mourn in Zion, to give them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they may be called the trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. All right. Where have you heard this passage before in the New Testament? Who quoted this at a very memorable moment? Jesus said that today this has been being fulfilled in your ears. Where was he when he said that? How old was he? <laughs> he was young, right? Yeah, he was just beginning his earthly ministry. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. Jesus is identifying as the one, here in verse 1, who has the Spirit of 
the Lord because the Lord has anointed him. So you see again, Father, Son, and Spirit all involved, same time, in the same activity, different roles. Now, you can see how the Trinity is, is not a simple doctrine, right? Um, and anytime people mess up the Trinity, the doctrine of the Trinity, it's because they're trying to make it simple. We shouldn't try to make it simple. We should embrace that God is complex. We are simple, aren't we? <laughs> we are simple beings. Um, and God is a simple being in the sense that he's indivisible. But he's not a simple being in the sense that he's not complex. He's very complex. And we have passages like this revealed to us, and it's tempting to want to explain things away so we can fit God into our hands and grab onto him and say, I get it, totally. Well, we have to be comfortable with not getting it totally, but at least understanding what he has revealed and stopping where he stops and going as far as he goes. If he, if he keeps going in his revelation and we stop short, we're going to mess up our doctrine. If he stops and we keep going, we're going to mess up our doctrine. So we need to stay in step with the word of God and just accept what it says, whether or not it sounds confusing or understandable. Okay? Thoughts on these Old Testament passages overall? Well, they're very clearly complex. Very clearly complex. Good. That would be a great subtitle for a book on the Trinity. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's silly that we, finite, ignorant humans, so insist on understanding the infinite. That is the concept. Yeah. Yes, we want to exhaust infinity, which is, um, it's impossible. Yeah. Oxymoron. Okay. So what happens then when we leave the Old Testament and go to the New Testament is something like this. Something that's a bit fuzzy gets clearer because God comes. God comes to earth. So things will get clearer. Even though we'll never exhaust it, we do see things more clearly. Again, the Father's deity, you can just jot these down. We don't necessarily have to turn there. It is very clear from both Old and New Testament there is a Father in heaven who is God. If anybody wants to dispute that, you're going to have a lot of issues with that person. (laughs) Uh, It will be very difficult for you to get anywhere in that conversation, most likely. But the Father is uh, clearly stated as God in the New Testament. Now, where you'll get into most of your disputes is Does the New Testament actually say that Jesus is the one true God? And yes, it does. Here are several passages for you. Uh, We perhaps won't look at all of them. But you've got the whole chapter of Mark 2. The whole chapter of John 1. And you've got John 8, 58. John 17, 5. These are critical passages. Uh, John 8, 58, and John 17, 5. Philippians chapter 2, pretty much that whole chapter as well. The whole chapters of Colossians 1 and 2. These are huge chunks of Scripture that testify to the deity of Jesus Christ, that he is the one true God. Titus 2, 13. We'll look at that one for sure here in a few minutes. Titus 2, 13. 
And I can teach you about the Granville Sharp rule in Greek and why that's important in Titus 2.13. Hebrews 1, 1 to 4. You could just say the whole book of Hebrews, but we'll limit it to Hebrews 1, 1 and 4. And 2 Peter 1, 1. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 1. All right? So, yeah. For, let's all turn to John 1, and I'll just explain Mark 2. Turn to John chapter 1 with me. Now in Mark chapter 2, there's an amazing event. There's a man, a paralytic, lying down on a pallet. You remember this? And uh, Jesus asks... Which is the more impressive phrase to say? And what are the two phrases? Yeah, which one's more impressive? To say, rise, take up your pallet and walk, or to say, son, your sins are forgiven? Do you remember the reaction of the crowd? They were surprised that he would tell someone their sins are forgiven, because who can forgive sins but God alone? And yet here's Jesus saying, your sins are forgiven. He's claiming deity in that passage, isn't he? And by that very action. Okay, that's, uh, that's an amazing thing. But John 1, verse 1, you know this verse. What does it say? <laughs> in the beginning, just like Genesis 1 starts, in the beginning. Was the word and the word was God. With God. Yep. That's it. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. What is the Word? How do you know that? Very good. Verse 1 and verse 14 make for a great marriage, don't they? The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. We can see consistently here that the word is spoken of as a person in the masculine pronouns. The word was not a plan of God or a thought of God, but the word was in eternity a person who became flesh and dwelt among us. It's an amazing testament to the deity of Christ. Also, John 8, 58. Do you remember what Jesus said to the Jews when he said, before Abraham was? Before Abraham was, I am. And the Jews got a little bit offended at that. Why would they be offended at bad grammar? Shouldn't it be, before Abraham was, I was? He said, before Abraham was, I am. Were they mad at his grammar? What were they mad about? <laughs> he was identifying with that name of God, Yahweh. The I am has sent you, is what Moses was told, the burning bush. Oh, and who was speaking out of the burning bush in Exodus 3? What does the text say? You remember? An angel of the, Lord. the angel of the Lord. The angel of the Lord. Jesus himself was speaking to Moses out of the burning bush. He's the one who said... Tell them, I am has sent you. And there he is in John 8, 58, saying, Before Abraham was, I am. 
deity, deity. John 17, 5. Everybody turn to John 17. John chapter 17. Hey, Jeremy, while we're turning there, a lot of people have an issue with uh, John, how often John points out the deity of Christ as opposed to the, the other Gospels. Um, but that same phrase is used in Mark six fifty when Jesus is walking on the water and his disciples are freaked out. Uh, he says, take courage, is I do not be afraid. Literally, he says, fear not, I am. So, same, same phraseology in Mark 2. Good. Yes, and in Matthew, maybe Mark, but definitely Matthew, you have John the Baptist saying, he's quoting Isaiah, and he's saying, make straight the path of the Lord. Clear out the way, make way for Yahweh. And he was saying that because Jesus was coming. He was saying it in reference to Jesus. So in various places in all the Gospels, you have Yahweh, um, Yahweh's name being tied to the person of Jesus Christ. Right? John 17, 5. Someone read that for us. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Okay. So explain to a seven-year-old, what's going on in verse 5? As Jesus is praying and he's talking about a time in the past, what was happening during that time in the past? As if you're explaining it to a first grader. The son was with the father before the world was. And they were both sharing in the same glory. Now, a cross-reference for this is Isaiah 42.8, where Yahweh says, what about his glory? He will share it with no one else. Yahweh says, I will not share my glory with another. And then Jesus says in this prayer, I was with you before the world was sharing in your glory. That's a pretty strong Trinitarian uh, statement there, isn't it? That the Father and the Son who are not the same person because you can't have one speaking to the other and being together in a place if there's only one. For two persons to be together, there has to be two persons. And they were in that glory that Yahweh does not share with another. There is one Yahweh, and we see a plurality of persons. Okay? Philippians 2. What's going on in Philippians 2 that points to the deity of Christ? Have this mind among yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, that though he, what? Existed in the form of God. Though he existed in the form of God, what? He did not. He didn't re regard that equality with God, something to be held on to or used for selfish ambition or something like that. So Jesus who we just read was before, before the world was, he was dwelling in glory with the Father. He didn't consider that something to be grasped or to be held onto, but instead he came from heaven to earth. <laughs> you know the song? He came to earth, emptying himself, verse 7, taking the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men. He existed before the world was and then was made in the likeness of men through the virgin birth, the incarnation. 
Equality with God. That's a pretty strong statement about his deity, isn't it? He is not a creation. Creatures are not equal with God. Okay. Colossians 1 and 2. What are some statements that you know from these chapters about the deity of Christ? Yeah, you've got Colossians 2.9. Melissa just quoted, In him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. You may have been quoting a different one. There are two verses that are very similar. Yeah, the Rivers and Robots song. It was 119. In him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And Colossians 2.9, which says, For in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. It makes you wonder how... How someone could read statements such as that and say, well, Jesus wasn't God. Those are as direct and as clear as they get. What does it say? Yes. Oh, so that means he was created. Firstborn of all creation. By him all things were created. Yeah, all things after him. He was created first, and then he created all things. That's what it says, right? You've got a Jehovah's Witness at your door. That's what they're going to be saying. How do you explain that one? All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things and in him. All things are held together. Yeah, all the things that we see, that we interact with, all those things were created through him. And verse 19, for it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness dwell in him. It was given to him after he was created. Yeah. There's a book out there titled uh, Reading the Bible with Western Lenses. You should get that book. Uh, it talks about how we need to take off our Western American glasses and read the Bible in its context. There are terms in the Bible like only begotten that we read and we read something into it that's not exactly right sometimes. Or this term firstborn. You read it and you think, okay, firstborn, he was the first one to be born. But firstborn actually in the Hebrew culture signified a place of prominence, a privileged position. And you can see this in the life of David in Psalm 89. In Psalm 89, it says of David that he was made the firstborn by God. Was David the oldest in his family? Yeah, he's the runt. He's the littlest guy. But he was made the firstborn, meaning he was given the privileged position. So when you read Colossians 1, Jesus is the firstborn over all creation. Jesus is in the position of privilege and authority and prerogative over all of creation. He is distinct from creation. It's actually saying the exact opposite. It's not saying he's a part of creation. It's saying he's over all creation. There's a fundamental distinction between Jesus and creatures. Titus 2.13. We were going to look at that specifically too. Titus 2.13. We're just about out of time here. Can you believe I used to do this class in one shot? That was when we did Sunday school second, and there was no time limit because <laughs> the sermon and stuff was already done. Yeah, I, I went and uh, listened to that audio. I didn't listen to all of it, but it was about an 80-minute class. So I'm... Uh, Sparing you here. Let's start in 
Boy, that's a long sentence. Yeah, 11 is good. Let's start in verse 11, 11 to 13. You want to read it, Mr. Bowman? For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires, and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for that blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. Okay, so when you read verse 13, and you see that last phrase, it's obvious, right, that Savior applies to Christ Jesus, but God refers to somebody else, right? <laughs> God and Savior, both of those titles apply to Jesus Christ. This is that Granville Sharp rule I referenced earlier. In, in Greek, when you see a couple of titles joined together with a conjunction like that, before the subject or the object, uh, in this case, I haven't parsed it, so I, I don't know which it is. But when you see those titles coupled together, being directed toward a person, both titles go to that person. Uh, that's a, a rule in Greek. As you read any Greek writing, that's how it always works. Um, Granville Sharp, I think it's two different last names, and these guys made that rule famous through this verse. God and Savior both apply to Jesus. So that's, this is one maybe you don't use very often in your interactions with people, but maybe you should. Here, Jesus is clearly called God. There's no one else in view other than Christ Jesus. Okay, and I'll just... Uh, well, we can just go real quickly over these other ones because you're close to the book of Hebrews. Turn over to the book of Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Someone want to read those four verses for us? Hebrews 1, 1 to 4. Andy's got it. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days he spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. And he is the radiance of his glory. Here, let's go slow through verse 3. Look closely at verse 3. Go ahead, Andy. And he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature. And it holds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high having become as much better than the angels as he has inherited an excellent name. It's almost like it couldn't be clearer. <laughs> Jesus is God, the exact representation of God's nature. Jesus upholds all things by the words of his power. Isn't that amazing? And then we'll finish with 2 Peter 1.1. 1, 1. 2 Peter chapter 1. Verse 1, it says, Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours by the righteousness of, here it is again, of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So we've just looked at the testimony of Paul, testimony of Peter, the testimony of the author of Hebrews, 
Might be, might be Paul, might not be. John. These New Testament writers are in agreement, aren't they? Jesus is the one true God of the universe. Okay, we'll pick it up there next time. I think the sound worked out okay, didn't it? I thought that was that was a lot better than I thought it would be, to be honest with you. So it's great. <laughs> That's true. She could be.